Welcome to part two of 5.8, Reactions to the Industrial Economy. Uh, let's pick up where we left off, where we get to individual countries and how they reacted to uh, the Industrial uh, Revolution. Ottoman response to industrialism. In the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire was no longer at the peak of its political power. However, it maintained some economic power. Sultan Mahmud II reformed the Ottoman system. In 1826, he abolished the core of Janissaries who had opposed him, see if you remember who they are, and developed a new artillery unit trained by Europeans. When the Istanbul Janissaries revolted, he had them massacred. The abolition of the feudal system in 1831 marked the final defeat of the Janissaries' power. Military officers, the Janissaries, were no longer able to collect taxes directly from the populace for their salaries. Instead, tax collectors' collections went directly to the central government, which paid military personnel, thus ensuring their loyalty. Mahmoud's reforms also included building roads and setting up a postal system. To fight the power of popular religious charities, he set up a... Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just ignore that. I'm going to take that out. <laughs> Reorganization. Reforms after Mahmoud during the years of 1839 through 1876 are called the Tazimat uh, Reforms or Reorganization and include the following changes. Education had long been under the control of the ulama, the educated class of Muslim scholars. Now the sultans created a secular system of primary and secondary school Secular, which means non-religious, you're going to see that a lot. Secular colleges were also gradually set up, one for each special purpose, military engineering, translation, civil service, and so on. The sultans wrote down Ottoman laws and created new ones, including a commercial or business code and a penal or criminal code. These codes made it easier for foreigners to do business in the empire. In 1856, the sultan issued an edict known as the Hati'i, Humayun, sorry that of my pronunciation, the Ottoman Reform Edict that updated the legal system, declaring equality for all men in education, all men in education, government appointments, and justice regardless of religious religion or ethnicity. Although not achieving religious equality, the Tanzimat reforms continued to have wide effects in areas such as the military and education. These effects continued even when succeeding sultans blocked other reforms. The Ottoman economy and society. The reforms under Mahmud and the Tanzimat occurred during a period of economic change in Turkey. After the Napoleonic Wars ended in 1850, prices for food and other crops declined in the Ottoman Empire. However, a global economy was in place, built partially on the flow of wealth into the Mediterranean from European colonial expansion in the Americas. Ottoman workers were increasingly paid in cash rather than goods. Financial enterprises such as banking increased. These economic changes occurred along with the slow spread of industrialization. The growth of industry affected men and women differently. For example, most new industrial jobs went to men. Legal reforms also benefited men more than women. Traditionally under Sharia, go all the way back to unit one and zero for that. Under Sharia, women had been allowed to hold money to gain from inheritance and to receive some education. The reforms of Mahmud made the law more secular, non-religious, and ended the right of women to distribute, it, distribute their property or cash through trust to family members. Although women had in control, indirect control of their property, the new non-religious courts ended even these limited rights. 
Many reforms had no effect on women. Since women were excluded from the army, their professions, higher education, and commerce, reforms in these areas did not affect them directly. The Tanzimat reforms of 1839 did not even mention women. Keep in mind the reason for all that information is so that you can compare how women's rights are changing in other countries um, as opposed to the Ottomans. Okay. Opposition to reform. When Sultan Abdul Hamid took power in 1876, he supported the efforts at internal reforms. He accepted a new constitution for the Ottoman Empire, and he continued to emphasize primary education and secularization of the law, not religion, right? Few girls were allowed to attend girls' secondary schools by the beginning of the 20th century. However, the Sultan and central government maintained tight control over the empire. Abdul Hamid eventually drove the advocates for reform, known as the Young Turks, into exile. Further, his government whipped up anger against minority groups, particularly Armenians and Assyrian Christians. Between 1894 and 1896, between 100,000 and 250,000 Armenians were killed through several provinces in what has become known as the Hamidian Massacre. This bloodshed, he, uh, for this bloodshed, he received the nickname of the Red Sultan. <clears throat> Keep in mind, that information's a little bit of a preview for something that's going to happen uh, around World War I. Reform efforts in China. Like other powers, China, under the Qing Dynasty, felt pressure to modernize. Its major reform effort of the late 19th century was known as the self-strengthening movement. It developed as a way for the government to face the internal and external problems confronting China. Government officials hoped to strengthen China in uh, its competition with foreign, foreign powers by advancing its military technology and readiness and by training Chinese artisans in the manufacture of items for shipyards and arsenals or for guns. French and British advisors helped Chinese reform efforts. A stable government capable of collecting revenue allowed China to repay debts and participate in trade. For the Chinese, their existence as an independent state depended upon economic strength. Reform in the name of modernization seemed inevitable, kind of like um, Japan, okay? The government strategy was to add some modern ideas and technology onto Chinese tradition rather than to create major changes. So again, very similar to Japan. Demand for reform increased after China's defeat in the Sino-Japanese War, China versus Japan. Emperor uh, Ganju began the 100 Days of Reform. The reforms included the abolition of, out, of the outdated civil service exam, the elimination of corruption, and the establishment of Western-style industrial, commercial, and medical systems. But then, Cixi's initial conservatism. However, the emperor's aunt, if you can believe it, this woman's the aunt of the emperor. Watch what she does. However, the emperor's aunt and adopted mother and the most powerful political figure in the country, Empress Dowager Cixi, was a conservative, meaning she did not like change, one of those continuities and patterns of Chinese history. At first, she opposed the reforms and wanted to protect traditional social and governmental, governmental systems. In a military overthrow, overthrow Cixi imprisoned the emperor, her adopted son, and immediately repealed his reform edicts. She feared the influence of foreigners, another continuity pattern. So she resisted any new technology that would extend their reach into her country. For example, she stopped the extension of railroad lines and telegraph networks into the Chinese interior. Reform of the civil service. However, toward the end of Cixi's rule, 
she came to recognize the problems with the civil service system. By the 19th century, though, the wealthy were using the civil service to get favors. Revenue dropped off for the government as a result of bribes going into the pockets of corrupt civil servants. Moreover, non-qualified persons were just purchasing civil service posts. China abandoned nearly 2,500 years of tradition, one that had yielded an educated bureaucracy. Uh, resistance to reform in Japan. As the Japanese continued to industrialize under the Meiji Restoration, which began in the 1860s, and the Chinese ended its long-standing civil service system, at the same time, the Japanese also ended a traditional system of exercising authority. In 1871, Japan gave up, uh, gave samurai a final lump sum payment and legally dissolved their position. They were no longer fighting men and were not allowed to carry their swords. The Bushido or code of conduct was now a personal matter, no longer officially condoned by the government. Some Meiji restoration reforms in Japan worked better than others. The new schools quickly improved literacy rates, the economy rapidly industrialized, and the company began to develop traits of democracy, such as free press, strong labor unions, and the respect for individual liberties. However, by the 1920s, army officers again began to dominate the government. More on that later. Limits to reform. Turkey, China, and Japan each followed its own path of responding to industrialism in the 19th century. Of the three, Turkey, the Ottomans, began to make changes earliest. However, Sultan Abdul Hamid, though he supported reforms at first, became more conservative during his time as ruler. China began to make changes only later in the century. In contrast to Abdul Hamid, China's Sisi started as a skeptic, started skeptical of reform, but became more liberal meaning wanting change during her reign. Japan responded to industrialization with dramatic rapid changes, beginning with the Meiji Restoration in 1868. However, the spread of, and depth of its reform prompted backlash from conservative members of society. All right, that was a lot of info. Now you can understand why I broke it into two parts. All right, we'll talk. <laughs>